This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello. Today on the Loopcast, I have Sarah Jane Turp, and we are discussing information operations, misinformation, disinformation, and cognitive security. So uh, the reason we, want, we wanted to have the show is at the beginning of the month, towards the end of May, we had Matt DeVos give us this huge trend picture. Um, we had uh, Joe Slovic talk about um, uh, SCADA security, and we had JD Work talk about the future of offensive operations. So today, the sort of capstone of modern infosec and sort of modern offense and defensive operations is this sort of you know this component of information operations i think for a lot of us this is came into a sharper relief in 2016 but there's a lot of people who have been in this field for obviously before 2016 who've done a lot of good research and today my guest today is one of those people so please welcome sarah jane hi hi there okay um so I want to maybe um, start with a very basic question um, in that, how do you define information operations? You know, what do you, what do you see as key actors and key uh, roles in this space? Um, because I think for a lot of people, uh, they're diff- they very much define IO through the perspective of 2016, right? It's the Russians on Facebook. It's, um, you know, you know, bots on Twitter or whatever, but um, there, there, you know, there has to be kind of a deeper sort of definition and understanding beyond that sort of situational understanding that 2016 gave us. Well, actually, back in 2016, I, I walked around a lot of people who were talking about fake news. So 2016, the, the big concern was from journalists and media and they were worried about this pollution in their news feeds and i I was wandering around going guys guys this looks like a very large-scale attack um so my background is decades of working on military information systems so looking at um ways that you can make sense of the situation you're in so situation awareness it's uh also making sense of what's happening around you when other people are trying to fool you. So you're always in this game of you're trying to sense the world. Other people are trying to build counters to you sensing the world. So really, really simple physical things like um, chaff, Um, you know, aircraft throw things out the back to make it look like there's other stuff out there. Um, Really simple, like um, counter maneuvers. Like uh, I I looked at um, things like, um, small-scale forces against large-scale forces. So beautiful things like lots of little boats pretending to be a really big boat by clustering together then splitting out. But in the information space, really um, what you're looking at is a resurgence of information operations. So in, in what the place to look is something called Joint Publication 313. 
So I'm, I'm lucky because I get to work with Pablo Brewer and the Gruck. And we basically, this is our life. We spend, spend a half our life taking these things to pieces. And Joint Pub 313 has a definition called the five pillars. So information operations has five parts. Uh, it has uh, computer network operations, what you'd recognize now as cyber uh, information operations. Uh, PSYOPs which is closer to the disinformation operations you're looking at. Electronic warfare, so um, basically radar, counter-radars, all that. Uh, OPSEC, operational security. Uh, what civilian world would be privacy, and thank you, Greg, for mentioning that this morning. And military deception. So military deception is kind of cool because a lot of the techniques we're seeing are rooted in some of those really early uh, military techniques. And, and we're talking... This is going back as, as long as humans have been humans. Um, we're, we're talking um, leaving giant shields behind so that the enemy thinks there are giants in your army. Uh, Alexander the Great, I think. Um, it, we're talking Sun Tzu. A lot of Sun Tzu's work was about how do you... Um, can I use the word mindfuck? Okay, I'm going to use the word mindfuck. How do you mindfuck the enemy? So... You have these definitions um, that include cyber. And again, thank you, Pablo, who, who argues that cyber is basically any two or three of these, the, these five pillars. So definition of information operations, combination of these things. It includes uh, information operations. It includes psyops. It includes deceptions. It includes disinformation. There, there are more modern interpretations. So I think if you ask the person on the street in Vegas in, in August, they'll, they'll probably tell you this is disinformation plus propaganda. Uh, and that's, you know, that's a valid thing too. So if you think of information operations as the operations that hit wet, wet um, and, and this also I, I think isn't uh, a bad definition of cognitive security. So one of the things I talk about is um, if you want to think about this in terms of the correlates between cognitive security and classical information security, then information security, um, it's electronic um, signals. We're talking wires. We're talking endpoints being computers. We're talking networks of computers. Um, the cognitive part is networks of humans. So we're talking communities. We're talking humans as endpoints um, with the wetware on the humans being equivalent to the, the hardware on the machines. So I'm not sure if I'm defining this well. But, um, that, that, that to me um, is, is how we think of this. So we'll, we'll, I think for this discussion, um, we'll talk more about the disinformation plus propaganda part um, you're probably going to want to know what the difference between disinformation and propaganda are. So to me, propaganda is more of a state activity. So this is um, dropping leaflets out of an aircraft on uh, a quote-unquote enemy territory. Uh, disinformation, misinformation, we probably need to define those two. So misinformation is information that, or, or content that is, is, is false. So 
It might be text that is false. You see a lot of that. Um, it might be images that are faked. So um, deep fakes, for example. So deep fake videos, we, we've seen examples of those. Cheap fake videos. So cheap fake is obviously easier to produce. It's things like slowing down a video to make someone look drunk. It, it's things like uh, image manipulation using really cheap tools. And really cheap fakes are actually um, as effective. And disinformation, the information that you use doesn't have to be false. It's a, there, there is falsehood within the chain. Um, there is that manipulation of population. Generally, it's done at scale. But the falsehood may be in the presentation. So it may be that you're using um, fake accounts. So you're not that housewife in Alabama. Uh, it may be that you're creating fake groups. So this is something that was done a lot in 2016. Is something that is still done now. Um, we're seeing um, recently, during the protests recently, we saw, again, the, old, the, the technique of creating two fake groups and then creating events for those groups, opposing groups, at the same time and place. So it's this manipulation, again, of people using things that are not necessarily true. Um, I'm not sure, have I, have I given you enough uh, definition there? If you want to go to the next piece? No, that's perfect. Um, I, I want to kind of explore, you kind of touched on it, as information operations as a, a sort of set of attacks on an information system, right? So um, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, so this is like, when we talk about information operations, we're talking about sort of an attack on the integrity of data, the integrity of it, the data and sort of the confidentiality, right? So the ability to create a cheap fake or a deep fake, or the ability to sort of have insight on a target so much that you can build a model and direct information towards them. So I, I'm trying to, um, I come from information security, so I'm trying to put it in the language of information security. Yeah. Um, so this is something that came from, from Danny Rogers, um, that disinformation is an integrity attack. And, and I think if we're talking about the CIA, confidentiality, integrity, availability definitions, that, that makes sense. Uh, we've also got the equivalence of DDoS. So we've got an availability attack as well. But but yes, you're, you're talking about um, attacking the integrity of individuals, communities, countries. Um, the more interesting attacks are the ones that are happening at nation state level, which are attacks on the idea of democracy itself. So Bruce work on of Bruce writings on the attacks on democracy are really good reading on that. So um, this is something that, again, Paolo talks about, is you, you have um, a set of assumptions that democracies make and people in democracies make in, in order to work. Um, things like the integrity of the rulers that you have legitimate um, governance, that that governance system works. And if you attack those systems, those democracies fall apart. And unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of that happening. Um, 
autocratic systems work differently, have different attack surfaces, but yes, I, I totally with you. It's mostly integrity attacks. Um, the other thing I mean is there are more definitions than one of integrity. So we're talking about integrity here in terms of trust and trust and attention are really big currencies in, in human uh, communication space and a lot because you're working in a virtual space because you don't have the physical connection basically your most of what you transact on the internet most of what you trans transact online is is taken mostly on trust uh now we're all kind of stuck in our rooms is perhaps more so so you're looking at that integrity but there's also integrity as in how well the system holds together so part of the trust attacks is also trust attacks that break apart communities so one thing that's um been used a lot um by what we assume is is russia and other countries is this idea of attacking the ties that are binding communities uh, there's also um, work on the other side uh, from the peace technology community on trying to rebind those communities. But this is something we see um, as a warfare technique. It, it's a, literally the divide and con conquer techniques. How, how do you break apart a community so that you can start picking it off? Uh, it, it can't act as a coherent whole. And part of this I think is because all of this space runs on people's trust and that attention and their beliefs and the decisions they make on those beliefs. So again, you have these chains of things that can be attacked and can be protected. So there's an equivalent there again. Um, I, I, you're saying, you know, how does this map to what I do? A, a lot of what we've done in the last couple of years is, is work on those mappings. I'm throwing the ball back to you. <laughs> I mean, this is, it just seems so wild. Like you're, it almost sounds like you, you know, you have an attacker that is attacking trust in a distributed network. And then as a defender, you're trying to recreate or rebind or whatever the verb is trying to let's say recreate that trust. And it's just, it's kind of just blowing my mind because it's like, it's for, for somebody on the offense, it's very simple, right. For like, we, we've already touched on the Russian campaign in 2016, but it's just very simple to distribute disinformation. And at the same time, I, I think about like from the perspective of a defender, you know, a defender not only has to kind of refute that, that piece of misinformation or disinformation, but then also has to focus on how that piece of information was attacking trust in this larger network. It's explain to us, like, how does, you know, at, at its most simple level, like what is that attacker defender dynamic? Like, it's just, it's just kind of blowing my mind. 
but I, I mean, this, this is asymmetric warfare. I mean, literally. I mean, this is what I used to work on. <laughs> it's, um, it's just in a different space. So it, it's, it's asymmetric. It's hybrid. Um, if you can force the other guys to change their mind about their military actions or about who owns a specific piece of country without throwing any kinetics, <laughs> you've won. <laughs> it's like, that's the point. Kinetic warfare is basically a persuasion tool. It's all persuasion. But um, in, in terms of how it plays out, um, really up to recently, the, the play was all on, on the attacker side. It, it was just too damn easy. So one thing that we did was uh, start pulling together people from all these different worlds. So we had people from um, misinformation, disinformation, um, the journalists, the media, the academics, um, who were talking about it in one way, coming from the fake news side of things, and talking about credibility and talking about how we protect news outlets. And we had people from the PSYOP side and the military side who were talking about this in terms of, of warfare. We were talking, we had people from cyber who were saying, hey, guys, we got something we might be able to use here. And everybody spoke different languages. Um, when we said campaign, um, everyone had a different definition for it. Like I, I was working, um, I, I kind of get into things. So <laughs> I joined a ad tech company and that gave me a view into where all the money levers were. So people do disinformation for power, for money, for attention, but generally most of it boils down to power and money. So it was like, okay, how do we shut down the money? Uh, and one of the big money sources is um, advertising. It, it's online um, paying for, for eyeballs, for your views. And it's paying for the clicks, paying for the actions. Much more, there are much more views out there than clicks and actions, but it, it's all worth money, which is why generally you end up at a website of some sort. But it, it's started putting these people together, started getting common language, and started mapping. So one of the useful things in InfoSec is this idea that you have maps of what the bad guy is doing. So then you can start talking about how you disrupt the things that the bad guy is doing. So we looked at a whole pile of different um, models. So we looked at the SANS models. We, we looked at the attack models, so MITRE's attack models. We, look, we looked at um, marketing models. So we, we looked at advertising models because the other thing about a, a good disinformation campaign as opposed to in information operations, um, PSYOPs work, is if you look at it kind of sideways, it, it's really a marketing campaign for the dark side. And as a marketing campaign for the dark side, you can model that. So you can model things like uh, the sales funnel and you can model things like conversion rates. So how many people have picked up your disinformation and spread it out? Um, has it been picked up by the, the mainstream media? Has it got to um, large scale influences? And we, we picked up models that were out there. So DOJ had a nice one and pulled them together. Uh, and built this stage-based stage model called Amit. So we now have um, 
in fact, when we pulled it all together and built out the model, it looked similar enough to the attack model, but with disinformation that um, we've now handed it over to MITRE. So MITRE are now continuing managing this model, which is absolutely glorious, but it's like, oh my God, a baby. <laughs> but they're, they're doing a lovely job. They're actually, it's wonderful watching it grow. Um, but it's, you need to understand the pieces in it. And a lot of what was happening a couple of years back was people were trying to treat the symptoms rather than the problem. So there was a lot of work on how do you educate the general public to recognize disinformation? And it's like, that's great if you're dealing with straight misinformation, like openly flat out uh, conspiracy bullshit or flat out, everyone knows this is a lie, glaring red lights. Um, there was work on taking down botnets um, because they were being used to amplify um, the disinformation that was going out on campaigns. And that's great if you've got very dumb botnets and they're all tweeting all the time. They're all on Twitter. They're, they all have easy to find names. Uh, they were created at the same time and they're all repeating the same sentences again and again. Now, like all forms of conflict, people evolve, tactics evolve, and you're lucky at first, and then you have to get smart. Um, so as we counter, they counter the counter. Again, just like the old days. Um, so we built these models, but we built from right from the early planning stage. So if you are planning a disinformation campaign, what are the strategic things you do in planning? What are then the tactical things you do to make that happen? Then what do you do in building out the, the people parts? What do you do to build up the networks of distribution? Which channels do you put that in? All the things you do before you even put it out publicly. So once you start mapping those pieces, and this looks, um, we learned later that there's something called pre-attack. So it's this idea that of left of boom, right of boom. So um, boom being like the explosives thing of, I, mean, I guess the audience already knows this, but what the hell. Um, you know, when, when the thing, thing goes off, then everything right of boom is stuff you do after the explosion. But there's all of these things you could have done before the explosion if you'd just been looking for those things. So we built this model for, okay, if you were just looking for these things, what would you look for? And we these 12 stages, um, including things like micro-targeting. Micro-targeting is an odd one because it's things like, you know, clickbait and paid, paid ads. It doesn't quite fit into anything else because it's aimed at individuals rather than broadcast, but it, it needs to be there. But having done that, having built out these stages and then mapped out the techniques in each of those, then you can start talking about what are the counters you can do. 
what countermeasures can you take at each of those stages? And what are the countermeasures you can take for each of those techniques? Because people are lazy. Creators are lazy. They, they, some of them, actually more, more often now, are being paid piecework. So we're seeing uh, disinformation for hire. These are often um, what used to be marketing agencies uh, are now selling disinformation as a service. And they're going to use the same techniques. They're going to use the same tool links because why rebuild every time? So we're going to see the same techniques. We're going to see the same um, traces. So we should use those. So again, this starts looking like InfoSec. This, this is what threat intelligence people do all the time. So we've been quietly building, how do we do threat intelligence? How do we do real-time threat intelligence when disinformation campaigns are happening? And how do we find the left of boom stuff? So how do we start spotting the left of boom stuff? And now this is one way of looking at it. Another way is to look at how this divides up in layers. So who gets to see what? So if you think about it um, in terms of these bad marketing guys, <laughs> then what you have is you're going to manage an incident. So you're going to create an incident. Um, for instance, um, something like, um, I say, elections. Um, you, you're going to do a hack and leak on an election. So you need to plan that incident, do the incident, um, do the monitoring and evaluation on the end of the incident. But that incident is usually part of a much longer campaign, which is something like I want to influence this election or I want to have a specific piece of territory. Or So there are much, much longer things running. Um, there, there's, so I think it's Clint Watts mentioned advanced persistent manipulators. And that term's a little controversial, but there's definitely a sense of there are long-term actors, there are long-term goals, there are long-term campaigns, but then there were these short-term, up and down, sometimes just a couple of days, sometimes a few hours. Incidents that you can track, deal with, go on to the next. But within that incident, the incident is a thing, but the thing that the incident is based on is narratives. And again, pulling in from social science. So, so another person we, we pulled in to start with were, were, was um, narrative experts in our original group. And we, we pulled Walker from um, Marvelous AI. And narratives are the stories we tell about ourselves. So these are internalized stories. So, for instance, our identity is made up of narratives. You, you tell yourself who you are in terms of stories. You tell yourself who you belong to, which groups you belong to in terms of stories. You tell yourselves which groups you don't belong to. This is in-group, out-group. And those stories, those in-group, out-group stories are really useful for building that chaos of splitting people apart. 
you tell yourself stories about the situation around you. You tell yourself stories about how the world is working. And narrative warfare, narrative conflict, that, that is the level at which the conflict happens. So that is what you're trying to adapt. That's what you're trying to nudge all the time. You're trying to nudge the narrative one way or the other. But what you see as a data scientist, and I, I count myself as a data scientist, is the artifacts online. So you'll see um, messages, you'll see images, you'll see videos, you'll see user accounts, uh, you'll see groups, you'll see um, connections between user accounts and groups, you'll see hashtags. And you, as a defender at the bottom, have to put all those artifacts together, work out what the narratives are, work out which way the narratives are going. And another part of this work, um, and we have Deb who is, Deb Lavoy, who is working on uh, counter-narratives at the moment as part of one of our teams, is how do you build an information space that works? Because one of the reasons disinformation works is because people are looking for information. But there is either the information is flooded, so you've effectively DDoSed, or there are what are called information voids. So especially in things like local news, um, we've seen things like um, pink slime sites. So there are networks of, of local news that aren't actually local being set up across um, countries like the US. And they're there specifically to um, AstroTurf, the information space, so that it looks like you've got a, a filled out information space, but really it's monotonic. And you can, where those gaps are, where there is no information available, then disinformation gets in. Disinformation goes rife. And we, we've seen some of this in COVID where people are searching for information, but there is no coherent central point of information or no coherent central trusted point of information. Uh, and then just inf disinformation goes everywhere. Rumor goes everywhere. We're kind of getting back to the Middle Ages a bit on that. So... This is, this is the environment we're in. Um, we're in an environment where to defend, to counter, you need a lot of different players who haven't traditionally been working together. And you need basically a large-scale distributed counter to a large-scale distributed set of attacks. But that large-scale distributed counter is still in its infancy. Uh, and we're part of trying to build that. Sorry, that was a long answer again. <laughs> no, that's, that's perfect. Um, I kind of want to ask you, so you've described this space where there's trust is at the center of it, narrative design, narrative expression, narrative design. Mm -hmm. um, 
so I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, what is success and what is failure in this space? When we talk about the offense, let's start there. When we talk about the offense, how would you define what is in a successful state for somebody engaging in offense in this space? What, what do you consider a fail state? Because it almost seems like when we talk about narrative and trust, they're, they're two concepts that are super malleable, right? I think about like Pizzagate at the end of 2016, uh, end of 2017, you know, it, it becomes this narrative, it gets twisted around, distributed, and it suddenly becomes something like QAnon, or it, it, it was the initial seed for QAnon. So when we talk yeah. about attackers, you know, what do we consider a success state? What do we consider a fail state? And then on the flip of that, for a defender, what do we consider a fail state for a defender? What do we consider a successful sort of state accomplishment for the defense? Even, you know, like even if these two ideas even exist in this space, the, the idea of... Oh, they do. <laughs> oh, they do? Okay. <laughs> oh, God, of course. I, I mean, basically, the, the, this... This is marketing's evil twin. So all the same tools work. So and for the bad guys, um, I mean, there's a quote, half of advertising works. You don't know which half, but actually there, there's a bunch of marketing tools. We're online. We can do this fast. Uh, we have auction analytics work off the ad tech. Um, we, we've got A-B testing. I mean, these guys use A-B testing. We've got things like reach. We've got click rates, open rates, view rates. Uh, on, on the domain to control, you've got money um, for people who are doing it for money. Um, so all of those pieces. You, if you're thinking about success, um, this comes down to the planning stage. That first planning stage is, okay, how would you define what you're trying to do? So there are going to be those real top-level strategic goals uh, as in, they might be national strategic goals, like, oh, we're going to take this piece of Ukraine back, please. Uh, there are going to be secondary goals um, of gaining trust, gaining attention. There are going to be um, execution level goals. So you're going to be wanting to do specific things at a specific time. So you might want to um, create distrust ahead of time, you might want to create communities ahead of time that you control. So some of the work recently, um, adjunct to the protests, which don't appear to be nation state driven, by the way, um, not from where we've seen. Um, but having defined those things, uh, things you might be aiming at, things you might, uh, might look for, you're online, so you can do things like look for broken links across communities. So you can measure, uh, as we do, who is retweeting each other, uh, who is friending each other, and the other ways that people connect to each other as, as networks. And look to see if those networks have started breaking apart. So you can look at those broken links, you can look at that broken trust. You can look at how your narrative spread um, so you can watch the narrative. Did it, did it make it across communities? Did it make it across platforms? Does it continue even without you driving it? 
So has it gone? Um, this our gut. The word word is word word fails me. I think I, I want to use the word native, but that is not a good word. Um, but but is it natural now to that community? So you can look for that narrative. You can look for the words in that narrative. You can stick canaries in. Um, so you've also got. I mean, it's, it's can be easy. I know mean, there's monitoring tools with most social media ad tech. If you if you do the ad route, so you can do monitoring on that. If you've got a website, uh, you've got monitoring on the website. So that define upfront, measure it. Um, the drivers, the money, geopolitical goals. You can you can see how you're doing on those. Uh, if it's something like a specific geopolitical goals, you can measure things like sentiment online. See how people's sentiment relative to that thing. So this is just like uh, Nike would do with a a new shoe. Just you're doing it with geopolitics, um, and the attention trust goals. Again, you can look at those. Good guys, you're looking at how you're disrupting those things. So similar things. You're measuring similar things, seeing if you disrupted those. How far did it get? How much broke? Uh, did this thing get out at all? Did anyone pick it up? Uh, if you're doing any sort of counter messaging, how far did your counter message get? So it's, it is, it's all marketing in the end. <laughs> Disinformation is just bad marketing. Um, wish I could say more there. <laughs> it's, but yeah, we, we have on Amit again, the last step is monitoring evaluation because we know they're doing it and we know they do it all the way through. That's interesting. What, what do you see as, so in, from the space of 2016 to now, mm -hmm. we've seen a lot of like disinformation campaigns, a lot of misinformation campaigns from the Russians to Pizzagate QAnon to, um, like the, the sort of current sort of COVID, um, COVID and Black Lives Matter sort of oriented uh, misinformation, disinformation. What what do you see in that space? What do you see as the most successful campaign? Right. So, do you mm. is there a particular campaign, a particular event, a particular actor that you would say is just incredibly successful? And within that success, can you parse why they were successful um, and, and sort of guide us through why this particular actor might've been successful, what they did right, how they did it, and then sort of maybe even why they did it. Actually, I like France. Um, I know you want me to talk about the guys on the, the attack site, but France's defenses have been pretty good. And, and again, I... Greg will disagree strongly with me on this, but I sent a chapeau to the guy behind the Macron um, election defense. That they put a honeypot out, um, that the Russians picked up, that they had everything ready to to counter just before. So, so this this was this was similar to uh, the 2016 her emails drop. Um, so Russia tried a similar thing, thing, thing in France when Macron was um, going for the French presidency. But what they picked up was documents off a honeypot. 
and the French team already had the counter documents ready to roll. There was a cutoff in, in France on just before the election when you can't do any more official discussion. And the counter docs dropped just before the cutoff. And, and it was beautifully done. Um, the other thing is that their education system is based on argumentation. As far as I can tell, I mean, I worked over in France and certainly the way that we worked was different to the way that I work in America, where things here seem to be more about what you know rather than that sense of digging down towards the truth. And they just seem less vulnerable, which is heartening. Um, again, just like traditional InfoSec, um, we made a point of looking for failures because we think we can learn from failures. In terms of um, the other side, uh, I, I, I mean, I think the Internet Research Agency, uh, it's wasn't sophisticated, but it did a lot, very lot for, for, what, for what it had. China has been consistently, quietly conducting uh, an influence campaign, which was not a disruption or a discredit, but a trying to polish China's image for a very long time and doing, doing it well and being allowed to do it for a long time. They've only recently gone on the attack. But I think in terms of success, they were massively successful and nobody really stopped them. Um, right down to changing out the bad guys in movies. And, and we should be aware of that. Um, there's a lot of manipulation that we don't think about. That you kind of touch on something interesting, and um, we I had this debate with a good friend of mine about this, and the I want to distill the argument as China owns TikTok, so because China owns TikTok, they were able to deprive TikTok of Hong Kong protest material. So um, as, as I sort of personally experienced TikTok. Um, in, in the beginning of April of this year, or was it April of this year? I think, well, the beginning of this year, beginning of this year and then a little bit in 2019, it, it was, TikTok was very much like bringing in like Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, like very much sort of that part of social media. And then suddenly when the Hong Kong protests started, Hong Kong content from like Chinese language content suddenly dropped on the platform. And there was nothing I couldn't like, I would go through hashtags. I would go through actors. I knew I couldn't find anything. Um, and, and the reason I bring this up, because this is kind of an interesting example, because TikTok is very popular in the United States and it's very much owned by China. And when we think about social media platforms like Twitter, like Facebook, they're all sort of, they're U S owned. So my, my sort of question is like, when we think about these campaigns, how much should we, in our analysis, include the ownership of these platforms? 
So when we see, when we think about IO, Chinese government, or IO that's led by the Chinese government, how much should we include the ownership of the platform or the where these companies are based in that analysis? Does that make a difference? Or as analysts, should we really be focusing on TTPs and individual actors? I think that definitely makes a difference. Uh, I mean, data scientist here. That's the corruption of data. And you've just completely changed the priors on that data. And of course that has an effect. Of course we should be aware of that. Because otherwise you're going to assume that data isn't there rather than it's been removed. So yeah, big important point. You've got to think about the whole chain, everything involved in that data. I mean, it, it just like to sort of close this, this part of the conversation, it just kind of blows my mind because like TikTok, the, the, the recommendation algorithm is so sharp and it was just so weird because it was just, it, it felt like an absolute deprivation of content. Like you, like through searching, through everything, you couldn't find it. And it was just, I mean, it, like I'm kind of, it just fascinates me because like up until then, IO really struck me as inserting content, inserting data or creating data. And now like, when it comes to ownership, you have this ability of doing wide scale deprivation and deletion or however you want to frame it. It just, it's just very like kind of a mind fuck as, as you kind of pointed out in the beginning of the conversation. <laughs> Again, uh, when we built Amit, we made a point of including Chinese um, incidents in Amit so we could include things like this because they're doing it today. Other people will do it, but people probably are doing it. And it's, remember when I said that the whole of the internet is virtual and it's all taken on trust. And one of those things is that people assume that uh, everything online is common goods and for common good. And it's, it's a shock to discover that, you know, sitting behind your favorite sales site is, is a bunch of hamsters who don't know what, they're doing or um, to discover that um, takedowns on a social media platform are heavily biased to be towards people who are poor and powerless or so if you don't know it's happening you don't see it and you have a skewed view of what's happening in the world and that's part of the problem too is Part of this is, is artificial amplification of voices. But yes, as you said, it's that artificial suppression of voice. It's that artificial manipulation of voice. That's kind of interesting because you, I think rightfully so that it's artificial, but at the same time, the design, the underlying design of social media with recommendation algorithms seems to, I, I think uh, Zainab, to fetch or somebody or one of the one of the researchers kind of pointed out like a recommendation algorithm is like all you want is like sugary drinks and that's all you're going to get right so mm -hmm. like on youtube i look at one anime music video and suddenly now you know 
my YouTube is just nothing but anime theme songs or something like that. But it just, it, it almost seems like from a defender's perspective, you're, you're not only fighting against an adaptive adversary, but also the design of these platforms, right? They're, they're, they're almost like, it, it feels like they're just designed to feed you the information you want. So if somebody goes out seeking conspiracy theories or whatever, they're going to just get more of that. Well, now we're getting into ML second adversarial AI, which is another thing I do <laughs> in a different world. Um, so yeah, you, you can freak the algorithms and people do freak the algorithms either deliberately, but a badly designed recommendation algorithm is going to do that to you. And you have things like, you know, you're not the same person all the time, but quite often the recommendation algorithm won't see that it'll keep pushing you down the same, the same path. So again, with the, you know, the same word means different things to different people. If you're working on five different um, areas, then you're going to want to look at things differently in different ways. I, I think there's been some interesting work on more modular views of the internet and more modular views of how it comes together. So um, some of the distributed web work, some of the work from, uh, I got, I have just blanked on the name of one of the fathers of the internet, <laughs> but some of this is because we don't design for people being whole people. So a lot of, um, systems, don't take the whole of humans into account and that needs fixing too. And that's going to be a much bigger lift. I, I think that's probably going to be the next project for the next few years is how do we customize so that we're not just looking at the internet through a tiny straw, which is social media, which is most people now are coming through one or two platforms and getting all of their content mixed up, jumbled in. You get like your grandmother's recipes coming in with the latest news, with, with opinions, with batshit crazy, all in one stream. And you get that as a complex human being with a very simple algorithm trying to feed you. So there is a lot of work to do on rethinking the user experience that we have when we connect to the rest of the world through these boxes. And that also is part of the problem. It also is part of the how do you deal with and disinformation is part of digital harms. So how do you cope with digital harms at larger scale? But that that is right now we are dealing with the immediate issues, immediate problems, and those rethinks, redesigns are going to take a while.
So um, for my last question, um, this is a big one. <laughs> when you when you sit down and when you sort of theory cast and you sort of just are in your own head, what do you see as the future of this space? What do you what do you see as the future of the benefits, the harm, attack, defense, where it's going, you know, where it might end up? What do you what do you see that as the future of this space? That's what we're building out in CTI. We have uh, so Cogset Colab is the nonprofit help found to work on um, group community based disinformation defense. And the CTI League is set up to work on COVID related infosec uh, events. And we run the disinformation team in there. So we have a disinformation threat intelligence team embedded inside a infosec threat intelligence team. And what's going to happen is cognitive security, stroke disinformation, defense just becomes part of normal for infosec defense. It's just another layer. It's just another thing we do. Um, We're working with the other teams. We're swapping tools. We're making ourselves work as closely as possible in techniques and methods and patching in. The problem will never go away now. This information is too useful, too good a cheap tool. Um, It's, I think, a little like spam. It won't go away, but it will be controlled. So you will have the equivalents of spam filters. You will have the equivalents of um, the work done looking for the the networks that push out spam. You have um, filters for sites that push out spam. You will have um, the toolings that, that work with you. And you'll have the operational things like they're putting dates on articles you post just little things like uh, during COVID social media are now putting up. If you look through the search for um, COVID 5G, you get a little note telling you all about you know, COVID and things that are useful before you get to see it. And you'll get specialists in this are starting to get specialists in this. Uh, we're over in CTI league. We're, we're slowly training a bunch and it just becomes normal. It it just becomes background. And hopefully, hopefully 2016 and all the things that happened then will just be a bad memory. Just like some of the original worms are just about bad memory now. That's awesome. (laughs) Well, um, that was my guest, uh, Sarah Jane Turp. Um, We will, when we publish the show, we will have links to everything referenced. Um, So you guys, after listening to the show, uh, make sure to check out CogSec Collab, CTI League, and definitely the GitHub. Um, I found that um, really useful, especially with Amit or Amit and the CogSec Collaborative. Like it just absolute learning experience and it was, it was fantastic. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you.